Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you that we could be here today. Uh, we pray for uh, um, Diana as she's uh, with her mom, and uh, we pray for her mom and ask, Lord, for strength, healing, wisdom, guidance, um, and uh, uh, we pray for Zach, who's not able to be with us again today, and uh, we pray that you would bless all of us as we study your word and that you would help us to grow in our faith, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. And why is that not working? Uh, this is how we start. Any questions from the readings? <laughs> Diana told me we should all turn and look at you, Dale. <laughs> <laughs> Lovingly. <clears throat> I do have questions, son. All right, let's do it. Um. Uh, Luke 13. Okay. You're going to need one of these, by the way. The fig tree. Yeah. Okay. Um, it's in there and done, and it doesn't explain it. Usually afterwards he explains it. Yep. And I'm not sure what it's telling me. Sure. Okay. Um, so 13.6. Yep. I just want to look over the, uh, the context really quick again before I Jump into it. Make sure that I haven't missed something. Yeah, I had thought about that as well. All right. So the parable of the barren fig tree. Um, uh, let, let me just read it, and, uh, and then we'll dig into it a bit. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, Look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure. Then, if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. If not, you can cut it down. Um, okay, so there's a couple of things in the background here that uh, um, uh, probably uh, we, we don't necessarily grab because we're not big farmers. Um, one of them is that fig trees don't generally bear fruit until year four. Mm. I didn't know that. Yeah, you know, and so there's this, um, uh, and the only reason I know is because I read it in a commentary. <laughs> yeah, I'm not a fig farmer either. Um, so there, there, there's something, I think Jesus is saying something um, really to get his disciples to think here. Uh, about you know the life of faith um and uh the the section right before this he has a confrontation uh with with uh, uh with people you know they're they're thinking that they're better than others because you know you know that this that this is the way that God works when you're good he does good for you when you're bad, bad things happen to you. But that's not necessarily really how God works. And so I think part of what he's driving at is, you don't understand this. 
You're like this landowner who says, you know, this fig tree should be bearing fruit even though it's three years old and it's really not going to happen for another year. Um, and also that he then is the vine dresser who is advocating for this fig tree. So there's a picture of this life of faith that's in the background here. And um, I think, if I understand this rightly, that uh, you have a picture of judgment, that you know there does come a time where uh, you know the tree gets cut down. That's John the Baptist, right? You know, you know the axe is at the root of the tree. Repent. You know that's the fruit that God looks for is repentance. But I think there's also a picture of you have these this this new faith that's coming, and it's including the Gentiles. These people who were outside of the the, the, the people of God, and uh, and so there's a picture in here for us for that too to to recognize that you know we've got these immature believers that are part of the group, and they need some manure, they need they need to be fertilized, they need to be tended to, they need to be cared for, um, and uh, uh, and the tree is not able to do this on its own. It needs the vine dresser to do that. And so to take it to an individual level, if we're the fig tree, you know, we, we need, we, we're looking to have fruit in our lives. That fruit could be good works. Uh, it could be worship. It could be sharing the faith. You know, anything that the Spirit moves us to do. And where does the power come from in order to do that? It comes through Jesus' care and tending for us. But it's not just on an individual level. I think this is also a picture of the church. You know, all believers across all time. Not just, you know, Gloria Day. You know, or even just the Christian church on earth. You know, it's a big, broad expanse. Um, when, when I say that, you know, it's across time and across the world and, and, and all of that. Um, and all of it then comes back to the fact that Jesus intercedes... He gives what's necessary to give life and growth. And at the end of the day, we live because of his mercy. Because he interceded. Now, I don't think that this is saying, you know, that God the Father was looking and saying, I'm ready to cut them down. Um, and the reason for that is, you know, you go back to John 3. You know, God so loved the world that he gave his only son. You know, and we talked about how Father, Son, and, and Holy Spirit are unified you know, last week. They're all in, in our salvation. But he tells the picture, you know, he tells the story in a way that the people could understand it. Even if across time, some of that has been lost on us. And so we need to translate it, you know, to, to understand for our context. Does that help? Where you got me was I was I was not thinking as, as uh, of the gardener as Christ. I was thinking the other way around. Ah. So there was somewhere else in the Gospels, and I didn't look it up, of another fig tree where he he said it's not bearing fruit, you know, and yeah. he made it wither away. And, yeah, yeah, that's right. That and it, I, I think that kind of got me. 
thinking in the wrong direction, but it makes a lot of sense if he is the gardener. Yeah, that actually takes place um, in the last week of his life, you know, and and, um, it's a picture of the judgment that is coming upon Israel, you know, upon the Jews at that point to say, you know, if you're not going to believe, this is what's going to happen. Because the fruit that God wants, you know, people start talking about fruit in in the faith. They start talking about, um, you know, doing the right things, living a certain way. In the American context in particular, don't drink, don't smoke, you know, don't look at pornography, you know, these really kind of outward behaviors. And, you know, and, uh, and there's truth in some of them that those are things that you probably shouldn't do, you know. Uh, but uh, some of them, smoking and drinking in particular, that's not necessarily, you know, there are going to be people in heaven who smoked. You know, there'll be people in heaven who drank. In fact, you know, for our Baptist brethren, uh, Jesus drank. You know, it said that he turned water into, not grape juice, but into wine. You know, uh, it, so... Um, there's freedom in some of these things. Uh, and, uh, and we're always trying to set up like these, these measuring points to say, oh, am I in or am I out? Am I living the way that I should? The fruit that he actually desires is faith. It's trust, which leads to repentance, you know, it, which leads to receiving his forgiveness. You know, and I always have to be careful with this because, you know, we're, we're sometimes, Christians and, and Lutherans in particular, are sometimes accused of, um, of a spirituality that um, leads to no change in a person's life. That's not at all what we're trying to say. We are trying to radically stick with the fact that Jesus is our only hope for salvation. But that doesn't mean you just sit there and do nothing. You know, before God, you are capable of doing nothing. But you're, you know, you are in Christ now. And that means that your life changes. You know, as Paul says in Romans, uh, should we go on sinning that grace may abound? In other words, should we sin more so that we can get more forgiveness? He's like, are you stupid? (laughs) You know, um, he uses a, a very emphatic phrase there, you know, uh, in English, you know, it's, you know, in no, by no means, but it's like, you know, in, in the Greek, it's like, what? This can't be. That's not possible. You know, so um, we want to maintain this salvation that is by grace through faith. It's that, that's all on Jesus. But at the same time, that, that experience changes us. You know, as it says in First John, we love because he first loved us. And that, that then impacts how we live. Anything else? 14. All right. He talks about uh, being humble. And I understand the, I think I understand 11, for all who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted, okay? Is there anything to the story that precedes that? When you go into a, a 
what's he called? Uh, dinner. The parable banquet. of the wedding feast? Look for the lowest seat. And then if you're moved up, fine. Mm-hmm. Don't go to the highest seat and then have to be moved back. Mm-hmm. Does that mean anything other than just that? or does? In other words, it says uh, the first shall be last and the last shall be first or mm-hmm. vice versa. Mm-hmm. In heaven, mm-hmm. rewards, does that um, equate to levels? Um Store your treasures in heaven and not in this earth and so forth, but uh, will there be any stars in my crown? Okay. Um, I don't, I don't, hmm. I don't know that it applies so much to, uh, to all of that uh, in terms of what we experience when we get to, uh, to, to heaven. Um, but, uh, I do think that um, it tells us something about how we should live in this world and how we live in relationship with God. Um, Micah 6, 8 says, you know, he has showed you, O man, how to live. And what does the Lord require of you? To do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. And... um, Paul writes about this issue of humility extensively. I think it's in the beginning of 2 Corinthians um, that God chose the foolish things to shame the wise and the weak things to shame the strong. You know, and just this really idea of, of how God works through humility. And uh, the... Uh, I'm sorry, people keep texting me. It's driving me bonkers. Um, uh, the... Uh, I think that the, then the, the humility, the humility it, it starts with our relationship with God, our dependence upon him, our recognition of him as creator and giver of all things. You know, and you know, so we recognize uh, where we are. Um, it's my son, I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> all right, I need to shut him up, I'm sorry. It's almost like, you know, I didn't tell him that I'm going to go teach. All right. Now leave me alone, son. All right. Sorry about that. Um, Where was I? Humility. You know, and so in terms of how we live then in relationship with others, um, I think that becomes a reflection of our relationship with God. Why do we seek the, the high seat? It's not generally or even not necessarily because, you know, it's a better view or, or, or whatever. It's often because we feel that we are important. And... When we feel that we're important, sometimes that gets us into trouble. 
um, we refuse to do certain things we you know which are actually loving and 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 kind and you know and, and so instead of seeing ourselves as important, I think that part of what this is encouraging us to do is then to look at the people that we live in relationship with. And that's not to say that we're nobodies or that we don't matter because we do. And, and you know, there are situations where we definitely should speak up for ourselves and advocate for ourselves. We shouldn't tolerate abuse, you know. Um, but, uh, uh, you know, how 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 does our humility impact the people around us and how does it then show as a reflection of our faith if i if i don't need to be number 1 because i know that god loves me he created me he provides for me jesus has redeemed me my standing before God, the creator of the universe, is secure. And you know, I know that I am beloved of him. I can walk into pretty much any situation and be you know, in, in the place of humility. You know, take the low spot. Now, if they come and they say, oh, please, up here. That's, that's a good thing. But it's not just a good thing for you. It's a good thing for them, too. It serves your neighbor. You know, because then they get to do an act of kindness. It, it, it all becomes kind of this tangled interrelationship of, you know, how do we love one another? You know? That and probably my example you've shown being humble everyone saw that you are now you know you know yeah that could be an example to others oh if i yeah <laughs> act in that way mm-hmm. you know maybe i'll be ushered up at some point in time <laughs> and you know it'll be mm-hmm. <clears throat> you know and think of it in terms i think a lot of this has to be thought of in terms of love and so i think of that in first corinthians 13 love is patient love is kind it does not envy does not boast is not self-seeking. It is not proud. You know, that's the life of love. And so, you know, that is, you know, the person goes to the, the wedding feast not demanding, you know, I should be at the, you know, the place of honor, but I'm just glad to be here and to rejoice in this moment. What not a better way of showing humbleness, by the way, Jesus came and right. humbled himself. Oh, mercy, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> what an example you have right now. Yeah. Yeah, in Philippians, it, it says that he emptied himself. Yeah, that's... Boy, I would have a hard time <laughs> with that. You know, to empty myself of... You know, even just a little bit of pride, let alone, you know, of all your divine authority and power and to take the form of a servant. Mm. Does that help? Yes. All right. The rest of this, you're probably going to hit on as you go through what we read and so forth. Okay. Okay. 
Catholic out of the creed. Okay. Um, I understand. Means the same thing. Mm-hmm. What? When did that happen? Why was there a need for it? It happened. 13, 1400s, somewhere in there, okay? Um, I can't remember if it was the 14th century or if it was the 1400s. Um, and this is important because the Reformation takes place 1518, okay? 1517. Um, and uh, that's when, the, you know, the, the nailing of the 95 Theses. Um, but the idea, I think, as I understand it, as I've done the research, is that people didn't necessarily understand or they confused small C Catholic with large C Catholic. Now, the thing that's a little bit ironic about that is really large C Catholic was about the only church at the time. You know, um, it did, the church did split around um, 1100 between East and West, the Orthodox in the East and the Roman Catholic in the West. Um, they were still remarkably similar, still are remarkably similar if you really look at them. I mean, there are important differences, but uh, um, when you look at, uh, you know, the, the controversy over it, should it be the Roman or the Holy Catholic Church or the Holy Christian Church, um, I think that they started changing it because people would understand Christian better than they would understand Catholic. But uh, this all really happened pre-Reformation. Because when I was growing up, I thought that they changed it after the Reformation to thumb their nose at the Roman Catholic Church. And that's not it at all. Hmm. So. On the same note, has there been any move in the Lutheran church to change the words of hymns and uh, to make them clearer or yeah um, more uh, politically correct that well the politically correct depends upon which brand of Lutheranism you're in okay oh. um, you know the same way that you have you know different forms of Presbyterianism different forms of Methodism you know, um, there are different forms of Lutheranism, too. Um, and uh, uh, so the first part of the question, in terms of had there been changes to hymns and original language and hymns, yeah. Um, uh, the hymnal that I had when I was a little boy was actually published in 1943. Yeah, it lasted 40 years. That, and that's some pretty good longevity for, for a hymnal, you know, when you consider how much language changes over time. And, um, you know, really we are living in a time of very, very rapid change now. Um, and, uh, and so in the late seventies, early eighties, uh, there was a push to, uh, uh, update the hymnal, bring in some new hymns because people still write hymns. Um, in fact, uh, in a couple of weeks, the, uh, the candle lighting hymn that we will use for Advent, I wrote. Oh, you know, really? Yeah. You know, so um, we'll, you know, we'll bring that out. And, uh, um, but uh, that green hymnal there uh, was one of those ones that came, that came out, I want to say, in 78. 
And there was a one that came out in the early 80s, I, th- I want to say 84. Um, and uh, um, there's some politics involved with why they didn't just use the same hymnal. Um, but uh, um, that was the, really the last time that we really got along in terms of you know, how the, the hymnals were created. Their goal largely was to modernize the language to make it more understandable. Since then, the goal has become, not for the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, uh, but for some of the other Lutherans to have the language be more gender inclusive, to, you know, do, uh, to do away with patriarchy or, you know, whatever. Um, some of which can be good, but also some of which just really violates the, the poetry and the beauty and the confession of the individual who wrote it. Oddly, the kind of maroon-colored hymnal that's up there, mm-hmm. um, that's the newest one for the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. I want to say it came out about 10 years ago, and it's the one that we largely use, even though we have the green ones in the, uh, uh, in the pew racks. Um, we just we just print the whole service, right. you know. So we we haven't wanted to spend the big bucks to buy the the, the hymnal. Um, and that's a topic we could talk about another time. In fact, I am going to talk about it when I get back into the adult class. I'm going to talk about um, worship and a, kind of a theology of worship, um, but that won't be for a couple months yet. Um, and uh, when that one came out. One of the things that people were shocked by is um, they returned to older language. You know, where the green one and the other one that I mentioned, you know, they would take out thee and thou and replace it with you and your and, you know, those. They put the old language back. And um, I'm a little bit mixed on that because on the one hand, I love it. I just think it's so much more beautiful and majestic. On the other hand... I worry, does it communicate? You know, do people understand what they're singing? You know, and, and I don't know, you know. Um, I mean, we have our kids read Shakespeare in school, right? You know, and it's a struggle, but they get it. You know, the thou, we use it enough, we should... I think understand what those are, but um, I don't know. There's a, a fine line between watering it down, dumbing it down, and making it accessible. You know, and and uh, uh, I don't always, I, I I often don't feel like I know where that line is. You know, just trying to make sure. So. So. Next. Um, I was going to ask you about sacraments, but you're going to get into that, right? So I am. Uh, in fact, next, not next week because um, it's Thanksgiving weekend and I'll still be in Michigan. I'll be traveling back on Saturday. Um, but the, the week after that will be our, our last session and that will all be about sacraments and what we call the means of grace. Means meaning uh, the vehicle or how God delivers grace to us. So, yeah. You'll get the whole load on that one. Okay. 
one other thing I had here. Oh. Talk about the upon your death the spirit goes immediately and the body doesn't come and go until the end of the age. Yeah. Okay, so what happens when we die? Um, this is something that, that people, there, there's a lot of, I want to say, uh, modern popular mythology uh, about this. And... Uh, uh, I think that the, the most prevalent image that, at least, at least the one that comes to my mind, it's from the old Philly, Philadelphia cream cheese commercials where they're, you know, they got these angels and there's clouds and, you know, they're playing harps and, you know, are there images of saints in heaven playing harps? Actually, yeah, in the book of Revelation. Are they reclining on clouds? No. They're standing before the throne of God in this glorious majesty um you know and uh, uh you know and so uh, there's you know there's this picture of you know what what happens when we die and it's just kind of our souls go to heaven and we become angels but that's not what the bible says uh you know the bible says that when we die we go to be with the lord well, what does that mean there's a lot of range for what that could mean um, some have taught that uh, that means that you go into a type of soul sleep and the, the Lord just kind of keeps you there and that you're asleep with him until the last day and, you know, and, and then, you know, you wake and you're in the resurrection, you know, a new body. Okay, I really can't say that that's wrong, but it's not quite what I imagine as I'm, I'm reading through Um I know that, uh, you know, in the resurrection, that the end game, the new creation, is that we have a new body. You know, that, that we are, are recreated um, as God intended it to be, intended us to be. Paul goes on at length about that in 1 Corinthians 15. You know, that it's not just that, you know, our souls ascend into heaven, but we're going to have bodies, that this is reality. We're flesh and blood as well as spirit. And, uh, and so when we die, the spirit continues on. It continues living. I'm not sure what that looks like. I imagine it. And, you know, so now that we're in imagination, I could be as wrong as, as anybody, even maybe even more spectacularly wrong than, than others. But I imagine it kind of as a uh, um, dwelling with God in a semi-physical form. Because the angels take physical form, even though that they're spirit. And, uh, you know, and God is spirit, and so he could communicate with us. And we live at peace and in worship and in joy with him, praying for God's will to be done and, and for the victory to finally come and for the day of resurrection 
There's a scene in the book of Revelation where the saints under the altar are calling out, how long, O Lord? You know, basically this idea, when's the last day going to come? We're going to get our bodies back and everything's going to be right again, you know? Uh, And, uh, um, you know, so there is that longing for that. But then I have people ask me, well, does grandma know what I'm doing? Or, you know, even, even more poignant, you know, does my husband or my wife know what's going on with me? And I kind of think no, because that doesn't sound very heavenly. You know, to still be dealing with the, the, the pains and the troubles of our loved ones. I think they continue to pray for us. The same way that I pray for, you know, the saints around the world. I have no idea what's going on with them. I know that some of them have trouble. I know some of them are doing great, but I pray for them, right? I think it's kind of like that. And then I don't know what that physical state is other than there's no sin. And then it's good because we're with Jesus. And then the trumpet sounds and the dead are raised. And those of us who have not died yet, you know, rise, you know, and we receive new bodies and all of those things. And then we live in a new creation and soul and body are reunited. So I don't think I really gave you like a solid answer there. (laughs) Well, it kind of hit me because I'd never, uh, you know, the post-millennial, pre-millennial argument and all that. Yeah. And I, I never, it never occurred to me because it always bothered me that Christ said, you know, today you'll be with me in paradise to the thief. Yep. And yet, in other, in Revelations, you're talking about waiting a thousand years or whatever before everybody's raised and that kind of thing. So that was always a, you know, it didn't bother me a whole lot because I realized one day I was going to find out. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But that, the spirit goes and the body stays kind of makes sense. Yeah. Now, you brought up two important words there, pre-tri- you know, pre-millennial, post-millennial, but you did not mention the third option. Ah, millennial. Ah, never, that, okay, ah, millennial. Ah, millennial, which means no millennium. Okay. And now the question then is, but wait a minute, second, Revelation talks about a millennia. What is this about? When we read Revelation, you know, as a Lutheran, I look at that and I see a lot of symbolism there. Yeah. You know, um, you know and, and it's written in a way that is intended to kind of be code. Cryptic. Yeah, but it's not supposed to be code like, you know, okay, this person is the dragon. The book of Revelation, really the theme of the book of Revelation is this world is hard. We are going to struggle and there will be suffering. And in the end, Jesus wins. Okay? And for me, that is like the sum of, of the whole book. And, and, and he, as he goes through, you, you notice there's different patterns of seven if you're familiar with the book. Mm-hmm. But the seventh one never comes to completion. It just kind of starts and then, boom, back to number one. And I think that's because here's this image of the end. 
And I would argue that the end is all the time from when Jesus ascended into heaven to when he returns. That that is the time frame that the book of Revelation is showing us. Okay? And uh, and so, uh, as you get to, you know, days one, two, three, and four, I mean, it's just literally sometimes like it's hell on earth. Right? And just everything is just death and destruction. And then you get to seven, and the seventh seal is opened, and the trumpets sound, and, and Christ wins, and they won. And I think what they're doing is, you got this image, what Jesus is showing to John is this moment from this angle. And then he comes from over here. Now look at it from this angle. And now let's look at it from this angle. And he just kind of walks around it and tells the story a, a few different times to over and over and say, yeah, there's suffering, there's tribulation, there is sorrow, but I win. And that means you win. And so the millennium as part of that is really just a picture of that length of time. It's not that it's an actual thousand years. A thousand in biblical symbolism means the full amount of time. It means all the time between the ascension to the return. And so, you know, post-trib, pre-trib, all of that stuff, we're like, no, 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 no. This is all one picture. Jesus ascended into heaven. We live the life of faith with all of the blessings and sorrows and sufferings and joys. And he returns and gives us the victory. So... So you ask for a teaspoon and I'll give you a cup. <laughs> what else? Uh, you're going to get into sacraments, so. Yeah, I will get into those next uh, next time we get together. Oh, okay. Well, maybe I so, should ask you. Okay, go or ahead. Whether you, or should I wait? No, go ahead. I'll you know I'll give you a, I'll be probably a little bit more uh, succinct with that because I will get into depth, not this time but next time. No, I'll wait. No, it's okay. Uh, well, my question's about sacraments. The Catholics have like seven or eight. Yes. Where I came from, we had two. And you're saying two? Yep. Okay. Yeah. The, the difference between us and the Catholics in terms of uh, um, number of sacraments really comes down to definition. Okay? Um, so the Catholics look at a, a, a handful of sacred acts. You know, so you have that sacrament. Uh, it's you know, a sacred act. It's a holy act um, that, uh, that they pull out of Bible and tradition. And I don't think we would really have a problem with, with any of their, their sacraments. They're all good things, right? Um, so you've got, uh, you've got baptism. You've got... Uh, uh, confirmation, you've got the Lord's Supper, uh, you've got um, uh, marriage, uh, ordination, um, extreme unction, last rites. I've forgotten something because there's seven of them. Um, but uh, um, these are all good things on the whole, right? Um, we have two. What's the difference? Well, when we look at a sacrament, we define a sacrament as a sacred act, 
all seven of those, we would say, oh, okay, good, yeah. Um, instituted by God. Oh, was confirmation instituted by God? It was not. Does that make it a bad thing? No, no. It's a good thing to stand up and confess our faith. Jesus says, whoever confesses me before men, I will confess him before my Father in heaven. You know, that's the whole kind of idea and point of confirmation. You know, so, um, but it's not instituted by God. So all of a sudden that's outside of our definition. All right. So a sacred act instituted by God that applies his grace, applies the forgiveness of sins through some kind of a visible or physical means. Okay. So as we look at that list, we only find two that really fit the criteria, that fit the definition that we use. So in the end of the day, uh, and those two are baptism and the Lord's Supper. So we would say marriage is a good thing, but does marriage give the forgiveness of sins? No. Um, we would say ordination is a good thing. Um, does ordination give forgiveness? No. The ordained get to speak forgiveness, but, you know, it doesn't, there isn't some kind of special, you know, gift of the spirit there that, you know, all of a sudden I'm, you know, a person who's ordained is holier than it. No. They're just people who've been given a particular job, you know, that should, you know, be lived in holiness, but, you know, they're going to be sinners just like everybody else. You know, and, and so that's what it is. It comes down to how do you define the term? And because we define it differently, we come up with a different number. And I think that part of why we define it differently is this emphasis of the Reformation on the forgiveness of sins. So what is, what, what are the gifts that God gives that deliver forgiveness? And that's where we really focus in on sacraments. And then, so, the fact that we can go personally to Jesus and confess and, and you know, that, you know, thank you for your goodness, you are a true Lord and Savior, mm -hmm. we don't need that priest to right. do it for us, as the Roman Catholics may believe, that's probably why um, confession isn't considered... Right. One, you know, you do it for us every every week. Yeah. Now there are some, uh, you know, to be honest, there are some people who would who would argument who would argument who would argue uh, that uh, um, confession should be one of our sacraments, and they look at some of our documents and say that they think that you can make a good argument for it. Okay, but you got the visible element part. You know, and, and that's why, you know, I would say that, and I'm splitting hairs here because theology sometimes is just splitting hairs, okay? Um, I would say that confession is a good thing because it's an opportunity to really, truly receive forgiveness, but it doesn't fit the definition because you don't have this vis visible physical element. You don't have the water. You don't have the bread and the wine that God has promised to use to deliver forgiveness to somebody. Now, does that make the forgiveness that I speak any less potent? No. It just doesn't fit the category. It's still a 
a means of grace because I'm speaking God's word, you know, his word of forgiveness. But it doesn't fit the category. So that's that's why they have seven. We have two. Now, is baptism a um, a part of church membership? In other words, if you want to become a member, are they linked? Okay. Um, yes. But not necessarily in the sense that some churches link them. Okay? We would say that Jesus commanded that, uh, um, you know, he says, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. So in that sense, baptism is necessary. Jesus says, do this. You know, and there are all kinds of promises that are connected to that. You know, that, uh, you know, the washing away of sins, the creation of faith, the adoption into God's family, and, and, and all, of, all of these these things. Now, when we say that it, you know, it is necessary, um, what, what is the baptism that's necessary? It's the one that Jesus describes in Matthew 28, that you are baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It is not that you must be baptized by immersion. You know, if you were baptized by immersion, that's fantastic. I think it's beautiful, you know, but it's not necessary. What's necessary is water and in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, okay? Um, Nor is it necessary that the person who baptized be part of this succession of priests and bishops across time. You know, because there are church bodies that would say that if you are not baptized by that succession, you know, your baptism is invalid. No. What makes a baptism valid is not the person baptizing. It is God's word working through the water. You know, and, and so uh, as we look at all of that, um, do you need to be baptized to be a member of the church? Yes, because the church is the collection of all disciples, of all believers of all times in all places. So baptism is necessary? Yes. And so to be part of that, baptism actually brings you into that, uh, that group. Now, when you start talking about baptism into a local congregation or membership in a local congregation, um, we would say, yes, you must be baptized. But that doesn't mean that, you know, if you decide to join Gloria Day, that we're going to have a baptism for you. You are baptized, I assume. I am. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, this is a good conversation because this is, this is yeah. Diana wrapped up. Right. You know, and, and... Yep. You know, and, uh, you know, can a person be saved without baptism? Yes. You know, we're saved by grace through faith. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ, it says in Romans 10. So a person can believe without being baptized. But we would say that a person who believes should be baptized. Because Jesus says, make disciples. How do you do that? Baptizing and teaching. You know, and so, you know, when a person comes to faith, they, they, the next logical step you know, is, okay, we need some teaching, we need some baptizing. 
So in Diana's case, we're in the process of the teaching part to prepare her, her for baptism. It, you know, we're, we're working on that continuum. She's saved, you know, she believes in Jesus, right? So, you know, okay, we got a little bit of time here. It's all good, you know, and, and so we'll teach. And then so the vice versa on that, though, uh, you know, a small child is baptized. Is that it? Or right in later stages in life, is something else needed? How does that work? <laughs> so when the because we baptize babies, and I'll get into that you know next time in terms of why we do that. Um, we baptize babies. And some people, they treat that like fire insurance. You know, ooh, they're baptized. Whew. Hope we never have to use that insurance policy, you know. Um, but the reality is, in a Christian home, we baptize our children into the faith because how do you become a disciple? Baptizing and teaching. It's the Word of God working in both of those. These both, you know, in baptism, it's the water and the Word. In the teaching, it's the word. You know, faith comes by the word in, in both cases. You know, whether it's working through the water or it's, it's, you know, spoken. But because that little child doesn't necessarily speak, we baptize to give the gifts and then we raise them in the faith. And they're disciples. But yeah, when, when the baby's baptized, it should... You know, Bring them to church. Let them sit there. Let them hear the hymns. You know, let them hear the scripture readings. I, I think it's fantastic. Because do you really think that you, know, you have to understand these things to believe them? I believe... Right. Yeah. And, and going back to the catechism, what we were talking about with the third article of the creed, I believe that I cannot by my own... Reason or strength, believe in Jesus Christ my Lord, or come to him. But the Holy Spirit calls, gathers, and enlightens the whole Christian church on earth. And so what we're doing then is we're putting that child into the Spirit's hands to create faith in the child, a faith that will be sustained through the hearing of the word. And the word is included in those hymns when we sing them. I mean... Surely you've noticed you know, that we're, we're singing the Bible, you know, and the message of, of the Bible as we sing our hymns. You know, and, you know, and they're hearing those things. And I think that the Spirit works there. That not to say, you know, that they're not going to understand more as they grow up, because theoretically we should. But sometimes people don't. Sometimes people have these intellectual delays and deficiencies. Oh, is that person saved? I think that you can make a good argument that yes. Absolutely. Because some of those people, they believe so thoroughly and beautifully. It's not about understanding. It's about God's work. All right? All right. Did you get a, uh, a handout for today, though? No. All right. We are going to talk a bit about the Lord's Prayer. So, once again, the main theme throughout this is faith. And I always want to try to keep that in focus. 
so as you look at what we've talked about so far, um, the, uh, we've, we've experienced God through the commandments, and we've met him as our creator. And, you know, he is other than us, and, and there are these demands that are upon us that we have not lived up to, but we fear, love, and trust in him, and that fear is really, you know, all three of those can be descriptions of, of faith, right? Fear, love, and trust. And, uh, uh, and we live in this relationship with him. And then we looked at the Apostles' Creed, which talks about what this, this God is like, who he is, and uh, uh, what he has done to create us, to save us, and to deliver that salvation to us. You know, and we dealt with this kind of this mystery of uh, the Trinity. Something that, you know, again, the Bible doesn't use that word. It's something that we draw out of as we observe about how God talks about himself. Um, and so um, this kind of summarizes what we've, what we've talked about here. We're trying to reflect what God says about himself in the Bible. Um, and there's, there's some theological terms there about you know, what God is like. Um, but we could apply each of these to all three persons of the Trinity. Is the Father omnipresent? Is he present everywhere? Yes. Is Jesus present everywhere? Yes. Is the Spirit present everywhere? Yes. You know, okay. Omniscient, um, you know, knowing all things. Uh, omnipotent, you know, uh, almighty. You know, and all of these things, you know, we see that for each person of the Trinity um, is described, you know, with not those words, but with those ideas. Okay. And, and, and so we have this experience of God and, and, and we know that he has given us this way to live and, and he's loved us and saved us and all of those things. How then do we communicate with him? Well, we generally call that prayer. And we have this beautiful example of what prayer looks like. Um, prayer is, in essence, uh, the cry of faith. You know, you know he's there. Uh, you reach out. You speak because he has spoken to you. So God speaks to us in his word, and then he's revealed who he is and, and how he desires to claim us and to save us and to make us his people. Uh, and we respond in faith, and then we speak back to him in prayer. Now, I, I think uh, when I think about prayer, I often think about uh, my kids learning to talk. They communicated with us before they could talk. You know, um, if their diaper was wet or dirty, they would scream. If they were hungry, they would cry. And my wife could sometimes tell by their cry what they wanted. I, I wasn't quite as sensitive to the noise as, uh, as she was. Um, you know, or or if they were just frustrated, you know. I remember one time my oldest, we were laying in bed and playing, and, you know, and he was kind of standing up, you know, holding on to my thumbs, and you can, he was shaking, and he wanted to sit, and he just all of a sudden, he goes, ah! <laughs> the dude's frustrated, <laughs> you know. And, and you know, I, I got that, I understood that, but there wasn't really a word there. But as he listened to us and he started to mimic us, words formed. You know, and now my son's entering into his uh, um, last year of college and boy, oh boy, 
that little boy is a man and we have some real conversations now and he's asking big questions and hard questions and expresses frustration in different ways and you know uses you know bigger concepts and all of those things because he's learned those things over time well it's the same thing with prayer we learn to pray by listening to prayer we learn to pray by listening to Jesus. Prayer was a very important part of his life. He would go off by himself to pray. Even the night that he was betrayed, what was he doing in the garden? Praying, right? Um, and at one point, the disciples noticed how much he prayed and they, they asked him, teach us to pray. And that's when he taught them the Lord's Prayer. Now, this is not the first time that God's people prayed. You know, in fact, we have a, a whole book in the Bible that is almost completely prayer, the book of Psalms. And some people would say that the Lord's Prayer is like taking all the Psalms and just boiling them down to the, the very essence of it all. Um, and I, I like that image, actually, um, because it really gets to, you know, what's important in in. in our prayer and in our conversation and uh, with God. So when we pray, you know, the disciples said, Lord, teach us to pray. And Jesus responded. It's, it's recorded in two places, Luke 11 and Matthew 6. Um, and when you pray, pray like this, our Father, you know, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. You know, that's the old English. We continue to use the old English there. Um, uh, you know, even though they modernized a lot of the hymns, when, when people started modernizing the Lord's Prayer, uh, I think people were ready to riot. And, uh, you know, it's just such a, a huge part of the way that we think and the way that we talk to God, you know, even though it's Old English, that that's, that's really hard to change. And I think that there's something very beautiful about generations gathered together, you know, praying the exact same way. You know, but if you think that they use our Father who art in heaven everywhere around the world, you've forgotten that they speak different languages. You know, so. so my question on this is to me, it's a much more personal thing. And there's nothing bad with this saying the our father but right. it can be very scripted mm -hmm. you're not even thinking about it yep you know it just bleh, it just yep. comes out of your mouth yep where is that enough or should we kind of take the time to really i don't know <laughs> put our own words pray in our own words to him and my answer is yes, yes it's enough, yeah. <laughs> and yes, it's good to put your own words to this. Because what I see when I look at the Lord's Prayer is I see this not as a, a prayer that you just you know, go right through word for word necessarily, although you can. Um, people, people get upset about this, you know, and I have too, you know, that we do things by rote. You guys work, Right. Used to. You know, well, I, you still do wood burning and, you know, you like to work with your hands and stuff. 
are there things that sometimes you do them and it, it is just so much part of who you are that you don't even have to think about it? Sure. I guess on the flip side, sometimes I don't know the words I want to use. And if you follow yeah. that, you basically, you, you've yeah. got all the words that you really need. So when you learned your trade, there were things that when you were first starting out, you know, and it was difficult. You know, you had to think through each step and, you know, go through and learn how to do those, those different maneuvers to get you to your final product. But as you grew in your skill... There, it became easier, you got quicker, all of those things. And I think that there is a parallel there with prayer. That, yep, going through the motions. But you're going through the motions, okay? That's not always a bad thing. I am so comfortable and so familiar with this that I can just, boom, there it is, okay? Now, I think that there's also real value in slowing down, thinking, and what are the big themes here? And how do I learn to pray about what it means to receive daily bread in a deeper way? You know, in a way that, that helps me to really experience the fullness of everything that is daily bread. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So I don't want... I, I, I've kind of come to a point in my faith walk where the concern about, you know, oh, I, I know it so well, I can just rattle it off. You know, and so that's a bad thing. I don't think that's a bad thing. Yeah, there's definitely value to that. But at the same time, I don't want to only be there. I, you know, I, I, I want to be able to dig into it. And, uh, and I think that there's good precedent in that. I think that it, there's precedent for it biblically. Uh, I already mentioned part of that, that uh, some people, they look at the Lord's Prayer and they see the same themes in the Psalms. And whereas the Psalms are kind of big and flowery and, you know, and some of them are very, very long, this is very mm, condensed. You know, and it takes all of that and just jams it into the, this very short prayer. That's short enough to memorize. And to carry with you, you know, and and if you can memorize it and carry it with you, you can start hanging different things on it. You know, I have, I have often said that everything that I learned, you know, in four years of seminary, and I would even say in, in my doctorate work afterwards, goes back to the catechism, and I hang those things. It's like the catechism is a framework, and and I hang, I hung the things that I learned on that framework, in order to pull them out and to, to remember it. And I think the Lord's Prayer works in a similar way. You know, the catechism, you can just take it as it is, and it's all good. Or it can become this organizing principle type of thing. The Lord's Prayer, it's sufficient just exactly the way that it is. But boy, you notice there's an introduction here, and there's seven different petitions, seven different things that you ask for. And if you think about what does it mean for God's name to be hallowed, Ooh, and all of a sudden you start pulling here and there. And, and oh, this psalm reminds me here. And this scripture passage reminds me here. And my experience with this conversation, you know, 
and it, it, all of a sudden, it can become very big. You know, and, and I think that the Lord's Prayer invites us to do that. And then you have this little conclusion at the end, um, which bears a little bit of conversation, which uh, um, I will get to before we're, we're done here. Um, but uh, um, there was a, a man uh, who was a friend of Martin Luther's. His name was Peter Beskendorf. And um, um, Peter was Luther's barber. Now, we think of barber and, you know, cuts your hair. In that time, you know, you're talking, the, you know, the 1500s, a barber was also like your physician. Your bleeder. Yeah, exactly. You know, your, your leech applier. <laughs> um, but also your counselor. You know, this is something that um, I think that the African-American community still has where people, guys gather at the barber and they just kind of talk through life. You know, and I think that there was a, well, I know there was an element of that to in this relationship. You know, and so um, they're there, they're talking, and one day Peter asks Luther, how do you pray? How do you do devotions? And Luther, Luther was never one to just say, oh, you just do this. He writes a letter. It's like 30 pages long. Um, and, uh, and it actually influences, the, that letter actually influenced the way that I write these devotions that you're using. This uh, idea of um, uh, uh, instruction, thanksgiving, confession, and petition. You know, maybe you've noticed that in, in the way that I, you know, have you think about it. That, that's from that letter, okay? And it, the f whole first part of that is just the Lord's Prayer. Pull apart with those themes. You know, what does this teach me? You know, what does this give me to give thanks for? You know, what do I have to confess? Which then all of a sudden gets into what do I see in the world? What do I have to ask for in regard to this? And it just blossoms, okay? And uh, you get a, a, a tiny taste of that in the small catechism as it goes through. And, you know, what does this mean? How is this done? You know? Um, so, uh, yeah, it's sufficient just as it is. But boy, oh boy, you can get in deep waters, and I think you should. I, you know, I can, I can imagine that you could get to um, any one of those petitions and just be stuck <laughs> on just how amazing and you know all the implications of what does that mean. And I think that that could be a very healthy and life-giving experience. So. Let's dig into these a little bit. So I'm basically going to follow this, this, this framework uh, where we see an introduction. And then it's going to ask for seven things and bring in a conclusion. Okay? And that introduction is our Father who art in heaven. And I love the way Luther talks about this where he says, God tenderly invites us to believe. Remember that the theme of the catechism is faith. He tenderly invites us to believe that he is our true father. Yeah, sometimes. Just beat me over the head and tell me. Yeah. Don't 
Said, Don't nibble around the edges. Yeah. Tell me what to do. You know, we're so... <laughs> yeah. But there's just this beautiful gentleness about it. Yeah. It's an invitation to believe that when you speak, he's going to listen. And he's going to respond the way that a loving father responds to his beloved children. Does, does that possibly impact the way that you know, we think about how we pray. Are you familiar with Monty Python? Yes. Uh, I don't remember which movie or which skit it was, but, you know, the, the priest is standing there. And, I mean, they do all kinds of religious stuff, you know, and, uh, <laughs> you know but uh, um, the priest is standing there, you know, and, and he's going to pray. Oh, God, you are so big. You are so great. Please don't smite us poor sinners, you know. That smiting, that idea of God meeting us in judgment, that's that's a reality. And it's a reality that a lot of people get stuck in. But it's not the reality of the Lord's Prayer. The reality of the Lord's Prayer is that of a loving father who wants to hear from his children. And he's going to teach you to ask for the right things. Because sometimes we ask for things that aren't good for us, right? Now, does that mean that these are the only things that you know, God wants to hear us ask about? No, not at all. But a lot of those things that we ask for, I bet you that if you think about them, they, they will fit within these categories of the different petitions. Okay? So that relationship of believing is, is huge. I, I think it totally revolutionizes the way that you think about what's happening when we pray. That it's not just, you know, this, this poor beggar coming before, you know, an almighty God, although I do think that there's truth in that. But it's, it's the prodigal son who is a poor beggar who's met by his father who comes running to him when he sees him because he loves him so much. That's what's happening when we pray. And I think that changes uh, our attitude and how we feel when, when, when we come before God and our confidence before God. So we have this invitation to see God as Father. And the first petition then is, Hallowed be thy name. Now, we don't use that word hallowed all that often. The only place in our culture that, uh, well, two places in our culture that I know of that it gets used. Uh, one is the Harry Potter books used it uh, in the last one, the Deathly Hallows. Um, and then uh, we have this holiday at the end of October every year, Halloween, which is All Hallows Evening, All Saints Eve. Um, so, what does it mean to hallow God's name? Well, it means to keep his name holy. But wait a second, isn't God's name holy already? Yes, it is. Good observation. But do we always treat it as holy? No, we don't. And so part of what we're asking for is that the, that the Spirit would lead us and guide us to treat it as holy and to use it in holy ways. You know, so how, what's that look like? 
well, I mean, you got the second commandment stuff in, you know, not misusing the name and, and you know, call upon it in every trouble, pray, praise, and give thanks and, and all of that. But we also recognize that what we teach and what we tell God or tell people about God reflects on him and shows him as holy or not. That sometimes our words dishonor him. And so we want to make sure that what we're teaching is biblical and scriptural. And sometimes our lives dishonor God. And so when we say, hallowed be thy name, you know, we want to make sure we represent him rightly with our words and our teaching, but also with the way that we live. That's a lot bigger than just, you know, hallowed be thy name, isn't it? And, and that's what I mean by this kind of, you know, blossoming out on the themes of the different petitions. Um, in the second petition, you know, we, we have uh, thy kingdom come. When we look at the scriptures, uh, we can identify at least three kingdoms. You know, so what kingdom are we thinking of? We can identify a kingdom of power where God is almighty. And we could say that that's creation. We can talk about a kingdom of glory in the second coming of Christ. You know, and uh, all things are restored to the glory that God intended them to have. But there's also a kingdom of grace where we live in his forgiveness and in his mercy. I would argue that God is already, the kingdom of power is already there and we don't need for that to, to come. And we do desire for the kingdom of glory to come. You know, and so there is a bit of that in, in the request, thy kingdom come. But you don't get into the kingdom of glory unless you're in the kingdom of grace. And so when we pray, thy kingdom come, we're praying that we would know Jesus' love and forgiveness in, in our lives, that we would know God's grace in Christ, but not just us, that that kingdom would come to everyone. So there's evangelism in this prayer. We're praying for our neighbors to, to come to faith and for everybody to experience Jesus' forgiveness. Um, that three kingdoms thing um, is, is something that uh, a lot of people will talk about uh, in, in Lutheran circles, that kingdom of grace. So you might want to just kind of tuck that away. You know, you might hear that in the future. Um, Thy will be done. Is there anything that can stop God's will from happening? Well, no. But we want to be part of it. And so we're saying, you know, let us be part of your will. Now, there are enemies that work against God's will. Which, ironically, God will use to bring his will about. You know, and we identify three in particular. The devil, the world, in our own sinful nature. And uh, people tend to focus on the devil. And uh, I actually think he's probably, in some ways, the weakest of the three. You know, in the name of Jesus, he has to flee. You know, the world is always around us, and, you know, that can be a pretty big temptation. But I think that we can protect ourselves from the world. For my money, the one that 
vexes me the most is that, that sinful nature that resides within. You know, where you have uh, this weakness that just is always there, that, that inner rebel, I sometimes call it, um, that does not want to hallow God's name, that does not want his kingdom to come, that doesn't want to do God's will. And so in a lot of ways, what we're praying for is that God would keep those things in subject, subjugation, you know, that he would keep them subdued. And in life, that means, in our lives, that means, you know, shaping us to live according to his word, which takes us back to the first petition, and to live in his grace, which takes us back to the second petition. These three kind of work together as the first part, at least in the way that I think about the, um, the Lord's Prayer. They, they work together as kind of one subsection. So if you have seven petitions, these three always belong together. The fourth petition kind of breaks the pattern because these are, these are big, godly ideas. How do we live in relationship with God and with our neighbor? I think these are things that we might not naturally ask for in our prayers. You know, if you examine, what do you usually pray about? You know, I pray about my mom, you know, having surgery. I pray about my kids, you know, being safe. And, you know, when people get sick, we pray for them to get better. These are big, like, cosmic level things that God's name be hallowed. Yeah, there's the very, very personal part of this, but there's also this big worldwide theme, okay? The next one becomes more personal where it says, you know, give us this day our daily bread. Now, big cosmic request, sure. We're praying for all people to have the physical things that they need. But all of a sudden, you know, this becomes more personal because we're thinking about our own bodies too. You know, and when it says daily bread, we understand that to be more than, you know, wheat and flour or flour and yeast and water, you know. This is everything that we need to, to support our body and our life. And, uh, and if, you haven't, if you haven't read this section, I, I would encourage you to do that because it, I, I find it fascinating that as Luther goes through, you know, he's like house, home, field, cattle, wife, children, and he even talks about good government. I mean, how important is good government for our physical lives? I, I find that to be a pretty profound recognition. And, uh, you know, and, and so we're praying for their, ourselves there, but we're also praying for our neighbors. And there's a recognition that God actually cares about our physical needs. Because we have physical bodies and, and he made us. Um, heat. You know, please let there be heat. Uh, enough warmth. So in this petition, what we're actually asking for is that we would realize that we would receive these things as gifts and then we would give thanks to God for, for those blessings. Uh, the fifth petition, um, forgive us our trespasses. This is one that uh, gives most people the most angst because it forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Now, Remember, whose prayer is this? 
It's the Lord's Prayer, right? It's Jesus's prayer. So when we pray this, you know, we don't pray this on our own. We pray this in him. We pray it through faith. Uh, the Bible says that, you know, Jesus actually prays with us and uh, that the Spirit intercedes for us. And so when we pray this petition, it's, I think it's really important for us to not think that uh, um, I can do this on my own. Even this prayer is done in faith. It's this trusting relationship. And so when we say, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us, all of a sudden we're part of a, something bigger than just me. You know, it's not forgive me my trespasses as I forgive those who trespass against me because then I'm hosed. Because I hold grudges and I don't forgive the way that I should. And sometimes I accuse people even when they haven't, you know, done the wrong thing. You know, I can't be the standard here. Forgive us our trespasses. Because we have those together. But as the people of God in Christ, we forgive. Because Jesus forgives. Does that make sense? Because this is something that bothers people. I don't know if it's ever bothered you, but uh, I've had this one come up often. How can, how can we pray that, Pastor? I just, I just feel like I'm a filthy liar because I don't forgive people. No, maybe you don't, but we do. We as in a collective. We or we as me and Jesus of the Spirit together. All of that. Both. <laughs> All of that, yeah. Because when we pray... And this is one of the images of the Lord's Prayer that I love. They pray this prayer everywhere, all Christians all around the world. You know, I've, I've been to Haiti and I've been to Mexico. Uh, I, I've been, um, on, uh, there, there's a part of Canada that still belongs to the First Nation that's never belonged to the United States or Canada. So it's completely Native American. You know, they all pray the Lord's Prayer in different languages. And as we pray this, it's not just that we pray it for ourselves. We're praying it for everyone. We're, we're praying it as part of this. We are the body of Christ. And each of us members of it. And it's, it's in that confidence that we can then say, forgive us our trespasses because we, the body of Christ, forgive. And I think this image that when we pray, we never pray alone is actually pretty important. That this is a gift that Jesus gives to us and he prays with us. And so it's not that I'm good enough that, uh, for God to answer my prayer. He has graciously invited me to believe that he'll hear it. And for Jesus' sake, he answers it. So, I mean, a lot of our prayers, we end them in Jesus' name, right? <laughs> for some people, it's almost like a magic mantra. In Jesus' name! God has to hear me. No. It means that I'm in Christ and I'm living in his forgiveness. You know, I, I'm living as his person. In Jesus' name I pray. In his mercy and his forgiveness and, and all of that. The sixth petition, um, and uh, lead us not into temptation. Uh, this is another one that bothers people because you know, God tempts no one. He's very clear about that. Um, and, and so what we're really asking for is to, for God to 
guard us and to keep us. Because if God were to lead us into temptation, boy, we're doomed. We're just utterly doomed. And, and, you know, and so in a sense, what we're asking for is, is for him to, to save us and to protect us from anything that would lead us into our doom. So that would kind of go back to, I guess, what, the devil, the world, our you, sinful nature. You got leads it. Us to that temptation. You got it. <clears throat> you know, and when people think about temptation, you know, th- there are certain sins that are popular to think about in temptation. Gluttony, you know, I was so tempted by the pie that I had to have another piece. And I'm not saying that that's not true. Um, I, I, I think that there's truth in that. Um, sexuality, anger, you know, that, that, the, these areas that sometimes it's like we get out of control. But temptation is actually bigger than that. And I think that there are actually more, some areas that might be more dangerous to the life of faith. Because when we fall in some of these other areas, we can repent and experience forgiveness. But in other areas, if we slip into temptation, we could lose our salvation. Like areas like false belief. You know, when we start believing things that aren't true about who God is and how he deals with us. Um, despair. You know, I cannot be saved. Um, uh, he says great shame or, and vice. And yes, gluttony and you know, sexual sin and anger would definitely fall under vice. Um, but I think that it's interesting that he doesn't list those things first. You know, he, he looks at false belief and despair. That these are, these are the areas that the devil tempts us, I think, much more dangerously. You know, when our conscience is not clear when our conscience constantly accuses us, we need to come back and believe what God says. Your sins are forgiven. You are reconciled with me. Now, did I just say that those vices don't matter? No, I did not say that. Please don't say that I said that. (laughs) Um, But uh, um, again, there is forgiveness for all of these sins. But if you're in false belief, you got a different hill to climb to get back to that forgiveness. And there is no level of sin. You know, a sin right. is a sin is a sin. Right. One is just as bad as the other. Right. <clears throat> and then deliver us from evil. Um, this is asking for every kind of evil, body, soul, possessions, reputation. Um, the image there is St. Michael, um, uh, the, the archangel defeating Satan. You know, this is an image out of the book of Revelation. Um, and, uh, um, this one in particular, uh, has come into, uh, some controversy recently because, uh, uh, Pope Francis has commented on this, that he doesn't want us to pray anymore, deliver us from evil, but deliver us from the evil one. Now, gotta tell you that in terms of the Greek, uh, the, the original text that actually fits pretty darn well with you know what he's saying, but I think that the idea is better in what we're doing. You know, 
It's not just that there's this evil one that we need to be delivered from. It's what he's doing that we need to be delivered from as well. You know, and so it's, it, I think, a broader picture. Um, and this is, in some ways, the most poignant in the way that Luther explains it, because it's not just that we want to be delivered um, in the sense of that I'm safe and I live through my life fat, dumb, and happy, but that this life is going to end. And so when we say deliver us from evil, we're asking for him to give us a blessed end and that he would graciously take us from this valley of sorrow to himself in heaven. That's the ultimate deliverance from evil. You know, we pray um, Psalm 23, uh, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, at funerals all the time. And there's this phrase in there, you know, he will lead us through the valley of the shadow of death. And for a lot of my life, I, re- I imagine the valley of the shadow of death being that you die and you pass through death to life. But the more that I live, the more that I walk with the scriptures and I listen to what they're saying, I actually think that this is the valley of the shadow of death. That our life is, what we call our life, is the valley of the shadow of death. And we're walking toward everlasting life. When we die, it's done. We're with Jesus. Now, we talked about earlier, we don't know completely what that looks like, but we're with Jesus. That's great. This is the valley. And then when we die, he delivers us. So we pray for that blessed end, uh, an end in faith. And then the conclusion to the Lord's Prayer. Uh, For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever, and amen. That's not actually there. (laughs) So if you look at uh, Matthew 6 or Luke 11, and you're reading, and you're like, wait a second, it's not there. No, you're right, it's not there. I don't know when. I, I've done a little bit of research, and you know, it's that edition was put on a long, long time ago. Um, at least, or at, you know, at, at the latest, it was the fourth century, the three hundreds, that uh, that people started using this. And um, there are Bible verses that talk about, uh, you know, thine is the kingdom, you know, yours is the power, yours is the glory, you know, and. It, there are conclusions to prayers in the Bible that are similar to this. And I think that somebody just looked at it liturgically. You know, how do we use this in a worship service to bring it to a beautiful conclusion? So if you want to leave it off, because if you go to a Catholic church, you know, the priest will usually pray through the Lord's Prayer, and then the congregation sings this last little bit. Um I, I'm pretty groovy with you know, deliver us from evil or deliver us from the evil one, and that's that's you know you know then you end with the amen because the amen is biblical too, and I'll get to that in half a second here, um, but uh, um, I don't think there's anything wrong with the other. It's biblical, it's beautiful, it helps us I think in a way approach this in a worshipful manner, and I think that's okay. Um, but Jesus does end the prayer with the word amen. Now, 
Amen is a Hebrew word. It is quite possibly the oldest word in the in, 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 on earth. You know, and I was going to say in the English language, but we're not the only ones that say it. If you go to a, you know, a church where they speak French, they end their prayers with amen. You know, if you go to a Spanish church, they end with amen. You know, if you go to an African church, they end with amen. You know, and I think it speaks to the antiquity of this word. Um, I, I would be willing to bet that when we get to heaven, we'll find out that Adam and Eve said amen in their prayers. Um, and amen, it's a Hebrew word. And uh, it, it comes from the word truth. And, and so it's like, it's truly. Um, uh, or yes. So it is. Yea, yea, it shall be so is the old way that the, uh, excuse me, the catechism uh, uh, was translated. Uh, and in some ways, saying amen to the prayers is saying let this be, you know, I want this to happen. Um, or I believe, I believe you're hearing me. I believe that you will answer my prayers. Yes, Lord. So that's the Lord's prayer. I kept you over a little bit. I'm sorry. Um, too many interruptions, but any, <laughs> Any questions before uh, um, I close with prayer? All right, let's pray and uh, get on with the day. Father in heaven, I thank you and praise you that we have the opportunity to talk about your word. And I pray, Lord, that uh, as we continue to read through your word and continue to pray, that you would teach us to pray. We know a little bit already, but please keep teaching us. And please keep teaching us your word and lead us and guide us. And we pray these things in Jesus' name, in him. Amen.